Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. I'm Batman. No, wait. I am Batman. No. I'm Batman. No. I, I gotta work on this. We gotta make this thing work because it's podcast time. We're talking Batman. This is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I'm Batman. Have you watched the College Humor video of Batman getting his voice and, and how he narrowed it down eventually? I kind of figure he used to be a pro wrestler, and now you get those guys, and now the only way they can talk is like this because they were yelling for years, and now it's like this. I think that's what Bat- I'm Batman. I'll show you a suplex. I'm Batman. Yeah, the video's funny because he goes through so many different sample voices for the guy who he strings up and and zips up on a line. And then eventually he tires out so much from the the second to last one where he shouts that then he settles into that voice. Uh, It's supposed to spoof off of Batman Begins and Christian Bale's voice in there, but um, so he go so he starts out basically by going, "Where were the other drugs going?" <laughs> and then he starts working through all these different people, ranging from John Malkovich to Ray Romano to <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld to Gollum. I mean, it, it goes across a wide spectrum of people. I think and- Sam Kinison would have had a fun Batman voice in a way if it become a comedic. Go look up Sam Kinison, but just don't look him up too long. A lot of things he'll talk about and scream about you don't want to know about. Okay. But just for the voice. No be fun. Sam Kinison is Batman. I'm Batman! Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is indeed talking about Batman today, and we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. You can watch the Batman at the Bemidji Theater right now. I have watched the Batman at the Bemidji Theater. I have not. And that's why we're doing a Batalicious double feature, part one today. We're talking all things Batman right up until the new movie. And so for that reason, there will be Bat spoilers forthcoming for pretty much everything that is not the Batman. And the next episode, there will be Bat-heavy spoilers for the new one, which I hear is fantastic. You've seen it. I have, yes. So Dave and I are going to talk about the Batman in our second of these two episodes here that we're going to be doing. Um, And so we'll get into the Batman here in a few weeks' time, and we'll get a chance to talk about that. Today, though, it's all about building up to the Batman, all the different iterations of Batman on the big screen, um, because he's been a, a very prolific superhero in terms of being on the big screen. But first, let's talk a little bit about the present. So, Dave, it's Oscar week. We're getting ready for the 94th Academy Awards, which it looks like are going to be fairly normal coming up here this Sunday. At least that's the indication I'm getting. We're going to get a fairly normal show. We've got hosts. We've got all that different jazz that's that's actually going to be back now this year um, with these Oscars. A little bit more normal. I'm not necessarily getting any specific buzz one way or another in terms of, of who might be favored to have 
a big night. We know who some of the most nominated movies are, but I'm not getting much buzz in terms of who might really steal the show in terms of winning a lot. There are some indicators that are not, you know, guaranteed or anything. It's like watching how the squirrels gather their nuts to indicate what kind of a winter you're going to have. But Coda just won the director or uh, Producers Guild Awards. And that's kind of an indication that it's got a leg up over some of the competition. Does that mean it's going to... No, the Screen not Guild? Uh, no, this was the Producers Guild. Oh, the Producers Guild. Okay. So this is totally different. Um, but, you know, Screen Actors Guild and, uh, you know, the Golden Globes, when there are Golden Globes, kind of give an indication of way things are leaning. So whether that's going to have anything to do with it, I don't know. But uh, we're going to have to see how things go. Ultimately, I don't think it really matters. We'll just kind of see how it goes. And there's never, ever been an Oscars award, maybe a few, where it's unanimous. Oh, this has got to win, and it does. There's always some kind of competition. Yeah, the last few years have been a little bit more of a of a buffet, where no, you're not specifically getting a lot from one section. You're kind of getting a spread in terms of this movie. This movie wins this award, this movie wins Best Director, but then this other movie wins Best Actor, but then this other movie wins Best Actress, but then another movie wins Best Picture. There's not one category that I am picking up a vibe on that any one movie or producer or actor or anything seems to have the clear front lead role. Because most people haven't gone to see the movies like we normally do. Um, things are so segmented and plus now you've got, like I just mentioned to you this morning, just before we got recording, you got to go see the Adam project, the new, uh, the new, uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds movie on, it's on Netflix though. So if you don't have Netflix, you don't get to see the, the Adam project. So when or we come don't around, look up. so you gotta, you have to find somebody that's got Netflix, to, which is not hard these days to go watch the Adam project. And a lot of these movies, yeah, they've been on the big screen, but some of them have been on streamers exclusively also like don't look up. That one, if you don't have Netflix, you didn't see it. So it's, I don't like that exclusivity thing. If you want to have a window to show it, yeah. And then put it on the big screen for even a limited run so that everybody can get a chance to see it and pay to see it. So most of the dollars for every ticket goes to the filmmakers anyway. So Netflix is a win-win. But anyway. So that's the big item for the present in terms of current topics is the Oscars getting ready for that this coming Sunday. And just wondering how it's all going to play out because there's not a real clear indication of how that might go, which certainly lends some intrigue as a result. The whole debacle, and we've talked about it with the falling viewer rates because people don't want to watch it. Oscars aren't for everybody. Not every sport is for everybody. There's nothing wrong with basketball, but I don't like it. I just I don't. I just don't watch it. Oscars aren't for everybody. They think they're going to be totally inclusive and they're going to leave a lot of categories off the show and it's still going to be a three-hour show. Maybe that is the problem, is that it's a three-hour show. Well, we'll give away less awards on... That's what people are more interested in than those categories anyway. They always go over their expected running time. Oh, always. Yeah. Just, just make the show what you want it to be. It's going to be pomp and circumstance. It's going to be haughty taughty But that's what the Oscars are. And they're not for everybody. But the other thing is that, you know, when movies are out and everybody gets to see them, everybody gets a favorite. It's like March Madness, for example. You've come up with your bracket, so you pick, let's say, Gonzaga to win the whole thing. So you're cheering on Gonzaga. So as they make their way through the brackets, come on, Gonzaga, come on, De Niro. You know, it's just, that's how it works. And but, you're hoping for any glimpse of something resembling yeah. a mainstream movie. Yeah, that would be fine. And if you got something that you're championing, great. 
but it's not for everybody. A lot of people don't even know what cinematography is, let alone what it means, let alone I don't care who wins. We did an episode on that. Yes, Go back and check the archives. But this is for movie fans, and I don't mean movie consumers. I mean movie fans who look at a movie like uh, a meal to be savored and not just... suck down the tubes you know just sustenance moving on you know if you're watching every movie in the airport lounge while you're waiting on your layover you are not a movie fan you're just killing time you know but for Hoove and I and others Rick and Nick we assume uh (laughs) then we can only assume that you might be more into the Oscars so it's not for everybody I don't think we need to get all worked up about it we assume Honestly. that's how Rick and Nick are. I mean, you hear that little blurb about them at the beginning of this I podcast. and The bodyguards wouldn't let me near them. I know. We're so important. Yeah. Speaking of hotty toddy. Maybe they're running around at night dressed as masked vigilantes. Now, I bet you right now they're having a relaxing morning. I got my OJ going and I'm here at work and they're probably having a white wine spritzer to go with their morning croissant. That would fit with those two with how enigmatic they yeah. are. Speaking of enigmas... Batman is certainly an enigma. Batman, over the last 30-plus years, has become a fixture on the big screen as well. And in three different iterations, actually four different iterations now, Batman has appeared on the big screen um, since the, the 1989 feature film. It wasn't a debut, but it, it was the first time that Batman had been on the big screen in over two decades. And since then, it feels like it's been a steady stream of Batman being in film and very consistently in film. So it, it's one of the one of the better, longer-lasting runs that we have seen for any particular comic book superhero character and now has become a, a fixture in film. Why is Batman... In particular, Dave, do you feel become such a sim- uh, such a good fixture on the big screen over this course of time like he has? Good question. Uh, and it's not because they're all winners. Uh, some of those movies, not all that good. You know, when Bob Kane came up with the character for DC Comics way back in the day, um, he was basically a detective. And like I said, I haven't seen the new movie yet, but I'm about to go see it so we can talk about it on the next episode. Um I understand he's starting to get back into the world's greatest detective, which is one of his many nicknames, along with the Cape Crusader and so forth. Um, this is one of those where I kind of wonder if the mask has something to do with it. Kind of like Michael Myers, you can project whatever you want on that mask. Uh, Batman is a lot of things to a lot of different people. And uh, some folks go for the action scene. Some go to see him be super brilliant in solving these crimes, which is kind of where Batman started from. I think it's kind of a buffet of reasons. I don't think there's any just one. I think it's a nice balance of things, that they've got the mixture just right. But I also think that depending on any particular iteration on the small screen, on the pages, or on the big screen, uh, have they really always gotten the formula correct? Although seemingly lately... They seem to be doing just that. Obviously, the Dark Knight trilogy was a huge win all the way through. Uh, The newest one, getting rave reviews, but they kind of have dropped the ball a few times. Some of the Tim Burton and Schumacher era films, not all that great. They kind of went every other. Um, so it depends, but and then again, well, the Tim Burton ones, the Tim Burton ones were both a success. The Schumacher ones were where. The, the downturn really starts. Depends on your perspective. Batman Returns is iconic in a lot of ways, but I don't really care for that movie. It's just not that good of a movie. It is drawn out and slow, and it's just, eh, I would live fine without it. Batman Forever was actually pretty cool, 
And then Batman and Robin, I think most people think that is just a absolute horrendous outing. If you like campy movies, then it, great. It's the bottom of the barrel, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of frosting, no cake. But uh, it's... So we're going to kind of take a tour here on where things have gone with Batman, all the twists, all the turns, the the, the du- dynamic duo and the bad guys, uh, and some of the spinoffs. You can't not mention things like Justice League, which are certainly in the Batman era. Uh, of course, he's in the middle of that, but also the Suicide Squad, where he does show up briefly. Uh, the, the Joaquin version Joker movie. People would love to see a version of Batman show up against him if they do a sequel. And there's talk they could. Lots well, to go over. Well, with how popular Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was, it's no wonder that they would talk about doing a sequel like that. My take is is this, that Batman represents maybe the most realistic depiction in, in terms of a superhero and the environment in which he is in. And maybe the, the environment is maybe not the most realistic, but what do we equate Gotham with? New York City. New York City and Gotham kind of run run side by side in that regard where you know maybe the only other now with Spider-Man he literally is in New York City. I mean that they, they, there's the real component there. So well, the you, same with Metropolis for Superman that's also New York City. But I mean New York in real life has nicknames not just the Big Apple but a lot of people do call it Gotham City, and that's probably where Bob Kane got his idea. I've heard metropolis is a generic term for any giant city. Correct. Minneapolis, St. Paul is a metropolis, but it's, you know, which is the metropolis of all metropolises in the United States? New York. They're all plays on the same place. Yeah. So Gotham, New York City, they, they've kind of gotten tied together in that way. But when you look at the various superheroes, Look at the the characters, the various characters of the Marvel Universe. The majority of them, and there are exceptions, I mean, Black Widow is a super spy, basically, and then you've got a super soldier like the Winter Soldier, you know, things like that. But you look at the majority of those Marvel characters, how did they get their powers? Well, in, in a lot of cases, it's, I got bit by something, or I was injected with a serum, or I, I was given something. Too close to the microwave while holding tinfoil. Same with a lot of the DC characters. I mean, Superman is literally from another planet, and he has all of these abilities that make him extra special here on Earth. You have other people who were given this this super powerful ability. But what is Batman? He's Steve Jobs with better abs. He's got great toys, and he knows how to kick. Yes. And he's really smart. That's the thing that separates Bruce Wayne, is that Bruce Wayne is is a millionaire playboy. I mean, he... You you could try to go, okay, well, Batman is maybe the most realistic or at least the most relatable superhero in terms of, you know, he doesn't have a superpower. Yeah, but his superpower is money. He has a lot of it. Not and, just. And that certainly helps. And there's a lot of people that are rich and have a lot of money that are just rich idiots. But, I mean, Bruce Wayne's kind of got the best of all bunches. He's got great resources. He's got great support network around him, Alfred front and center. Um, he knows how to use this stuff. And, you know, if I think if we're talking about he's the most realistic superhero, depends on which version you're talking about. The Correct. Adam West version, come on. The, 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 the Tim Burton versions and the Joe Schumacher versions, come on. But when they did the Dark Knight trilogy, the Batman Begins in particular, let's just pretend for a moment that, let's say, Steve Jobs or, um, oh, Bill Gates or somebody that has all the resources in the world and had a better, you know, fit persona 
decided I'd like to be a crime-fighting vigilante. How would it be done? If you can suspend that one thing of belief, make it believable. And they did. It was very believable to that extent. I think Bruce Wayne makes Batman compelling, too, with yes. his backstory, with his, the, the murder of his parents, the way that that fuels his vigilante choices that he decides to make. I think the singular nature of him makes him really compelling, too, that he here's this... Here is this millionaire, billionaire, whatever, who decides to do all of decides to do all of these things and make this choice and yet is a very singular person in many ways. You know, doesn't have a lot of consistent people in his life outside of his butler Alfred and depending on the what whatever iteration of Batman you're watching, the character of Dick Grayson, aka Robin, who also comes into the picture in that regard as as his partner, as his sidekick and the way that that's been used has has kind of varied in different respects. But I think the other component that makes Batman so interesting and compelling is the villain component. Yes. The villains... The rogues gallery. Yeah, the rogues gallery and the villains, Dave, I think they they represent a, a fascinating cross-section of evil and of the the extremes of society and you you get in the various villains of Batman's universe you get i think a really interesting collection of the worst of us because what's batman doing he's working he's working essentially as this this by night crime fighter who also is is a symbol in many ways he's a symbol of good and of hope he's a symbol of fear and terror as well he tries to strike fear into the the darkest components of society of Gotham City you know he's he's being the one who is trying to clean up Gotham when there's a corrupt police force that that's going on he's being the one who's trying to clean it up and trying to rid Gotham of various forms of villainy that are around and yet with his biggest villains his greatest villains they represent this massive cross section of evil you have a lot of crime syndicate people whether it's Carmine Falcone or Salvatore Moroni or various people like that who represent crime uh, who come in there or crime syndicates or um, crime bosses, mobs, the mafia, you know, things like that. They represent that. But then you get the extremes of the extremes who are in there, too. You get your Joker, just a, a, a psychopath, maniacal individual who who just completely operates unhinged with his decisions that he makes and what and what kind of things he does you have somebody like the riddler who you can factor in there too who's given a bit of a different depiction here in the big screen depiction that he's in now certainly a lot different than the jim carrey version of it then you have somebody like the penguin who again is tied into more of a crime boss kind of kind of affiliation with with how he's represented not just the danny devito it's sardines version. Correct. So you, you've got, and then you have somebody like Two-Face who, who represents good and evil, flipping back and forth between that, and, and is symbolic of what comes with that. Every character, it feels like, in the villainscape and, and the villain side of Batman seems to represent something a little bit different about evil and about the, the edges of evil in the world around us. I always felt Catwoman was almost like a Boba Fett. You know, it might be good, might be bad, depending on what's going on, but she's in it for her own good. Right. For her own needs, I guess. Yeah, she represents that 
that swing yep. a little bit. It, it kind of depends on the story. You might get a little bit more of a of a good Catwoman. You might get a little bit more of an evil one. The the Michelle Pfeiffer version of Catwoman, she she tends to it feels like tilt more toward the bad side for much of that movie. Would, it's almost you a say? revenge for her life up to that point. Yeah, kind of idea. Almost yeah. almost like a Norman Bates kind of a. Almost like Batman in a way. She's almost a counterpart in that she's normal person for the most part, or at least appears so on the surface before snaps. And almost becoming Catwoman is more than just putting on an outfit. Same as Bruce Wayne putting on the bat cowl. It's not just putting something on. It's a literal switch. It is kind of Batesonian where you kind of literally become somebody else. Yeah, I would say it feels like the Michelle Pfeiffer version of Catwoman a little bit more on the bad side yep. for much of that movie until the end. Like that's that's where she she kind of she becomes more break. of that helpful side. Yeah, the Anne Hathaway version of Catwoman different, more of a chaotic neutral. I would say where she she is a rogue in the neutral end of things, a little bit more of a chaotic one. But for the most part, you can kind of tell she's she's kind of out there on her own sort of with what she's doing and yet it feels like if she's going to go any direction it, it feels like she is capable of going to Batman's side although she betrays him at one point in the movie too though and it's like well, she really is in it for herself so that's where the chaotic neutral part is but it also feels like she kind of she respects Batman she kind of appreciates him kind of likes him you see that throughout I mean even when she betrays him she feels bad immediately watching him just get pulverized by Bane so it, those those evil characters the the darker characters in Batman it feels like they represent a great cross section of the evil in the world around us to the extreme and depending on what era we're talking about, one of the things I liked about the Rogues Gallery for a long time was that it was colorful and fun and playful bad guys, but like almost cartoony bad guys and almost literally bad guys. You know, the Joker isn't, the bad guys always dress, the cowboys in the black hats, they're always wearing the dark clothes. Then you get something big, bright, and powerful like the Joker, who's, I mean, stands out anywhere. He wears purple and green. Purple and green and big, bright hair and a white face with bright red lipstick, and he's not exactly what you would expect it to be. And then depending on which version you've got, you've got, you know, Cesar Romero from the TV show and the first, you know, movie from the 60s. You've got Jack Nicholson with a slightly more unhinged version of that. And then it starts getting a little more gritty and realistic when you start bringing in guys like Heath Ledger and to an extent Jared Leto and Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm sure we'll, is not the last we're going to see of the Joker. But even you got to give a shout out to Mark Hamill and his voice version yes. from the Mask of the Phantasm 90s cartoon the version. Who has been, uh, you never saw him as the Joker, but the voice that he did brought it to life. And that is almost oh, a takeoff of the original, but much more sinister. Mark Hamill is so known for Luke Skywalker, and yet he is so extremely known as well for his portrayal of the Joker and his voice portrayal of the Joker, which, I mean, he's he's made a, a legacy for himself with that, too. He was at a Comic-Con, and one of the fans had a request, which he honored. So he started reading Luke Skywalker dialogue in the voice of the Joker, which was funny. <laughs> so you have these iconic lines. There's got to be, be video out there of that. Oh, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. But it's uh, it was a hoot to hear the Joker basically yeah. do the Luke Skywalker lines. 
So Batman, in terms of on the big screen, actually goes back to the 1940s. There were two versions of Batman on the big screen then. 1943 was the first time Batman was on the big screen, which that was that was only within about 10 years of yeah. becoming a comic book character and when Bob Kane originally created Batman. And then, then there was a, a movie called Batman and Robin that came along in 1949. But then the first really big, really well-known Batman on-screen version was the Adam West TV show of the 1960s, which was just a a camp Camp-alicious. classic. Yeah, camp classic, basically. And then, then from that came Batman the movie in 1966 with Adam West, again, in the, the title character's role. Um, I mean, that, that TV show became... Very popular. I mean, it was a oh, it was yeah. a popular show, but it was it was not Batman as we've come to know Batman. It was it was campy. It was silly. It was it was slapstick. It was bam, bam pow, kablamo. Well, you gotta and also recognize that a lot of this stuff, kind of like James Bond, is a parallel. One of the nice things about the Bond movies is that they are each a product of their time. You know, so if you go watch. No Time to Die. I want, I love that Bond. I want to see them all. So you go back to 1962 with Dr. No. It's not quite the same thing at all because it's a product of its time. And a lot of it, you can, I'm not saying it's the exact same kind of flavor as Batman. Obviously not. But you can get the idea. They did it seriously, but there was just kind of an air of camp in the 60s that worked. One of the more popular shows on TV at the time was Laugh-In where you're getting a pie in the face, and that was just the funniest thing on TV that really wouldn't play today, but that's what it was then. So Batman back then, even at the time, wasn't designed to be a serious drama. It was like a Saturday morning cartoon for kids, generally, and it was absolutely sugar-sweet cereal is all it was. It paid homage to the characters, of course, but it was campy. It was fun. It wasn't risque. Maybe the outfits that uh, the various versions of the Catwoman would wear were probably about as risque as it got. But even then, they showed from the neck up, you know, but it was very form-fitting. And, you know, maybe that was enough for 60s parents to avert their children's eyes. But, I mean, you also had an amazing cast. All these, you know, characters that were playing these various, you know, roles, the, the good guys and the bad guys, were all fairly well-known. Cesar Romero, great actor. You had uh, Burgess Meredith as the Penguin a lot of times. You might remember him as Rocky's trainer and the, you know, Mick in the movie. Yes. Uh, they yep. were all very, Frank Gorshin was one of those guys. He was the Riddler in a lot of those. Uh, Adam West, and I don't just mean later on in Family Guy, he had some pretty good, you know, prospects going even back then. So it was a great attractant for anybody who wanted to be involved, and they brought in some great talent at the time. But it was what it was. It was colorful, it was slick, but it was campy. And it's a lot of fun to watch today, but it just, you know, you can't go watch something like The Batman and then say, let's go watch all of them. Let's start with Adam West and expect there to be some kind of, you know, connective thread because there really isn't. Yeah, there's not a continuity in terms of even mood. That started to change, though. Over time, so by the by the late 1970s, I was reading a little bit about the history of Batman and Batman in film, and the history of the 1989 version of Batman. By the time the late 1970s rolled around, it it made it very clear. I mean, the popularity of Batman had really declined. It was it was in a much lower spot. And consider too, other characters on film at that time. Superman really was was the hero on screen. 1970s, 1980s, you have Christopher Reeves' Superman, who was, I mean, they, they had 
the original movie and then just sequel on sequel on sequel on sequel. You and I have talked about that. You have loaned me Superman and Superman 2 to watch. And, and well, yeah, Superman primarily, especially um, they Superman was the one who had really made, found his, his spot on the big screen and was really, I mean, reaping the benefits and the dividends from it. As far as superheroes out there on the screen, there was there was no competition. There was nobody else out there. Not it was, on the big screen. It was it was Superman who really had cornered that market. But Warner Brothers was was already talking about getting Batman on the big screen. I mean, Batman 1989 was a work was a 10-year work in progress basically. They they had gone through a process of of trying to get ready to have that movie be on the big screen and in fact there had been there had been an iteration of batman that had been in the works that was completely different from what we end up seeing um on on the big screen with that final product where there was talk about having an unknown actor or a not very well known actor play batman and then the roles around him we're going to be filled out by some big names. Um, David Niven's name, I believe, was floated for Alfred, that he was going to play him. They were going to have Peter O'Toole as the Penguin, was what had been tossed out there. Um, they were going to have, they were going to have a woman play Silver Saint Clair. They had, they had all these different roles that were prepped and prepared and were going to be carried out on the big screen. I want to, I want to see if I can find what some of the the other roles were going to be that that people had William Holden for for James Gordon um that was the, was the other one he was the other name that was in there too um Tom Mankiewicz had had created this script and this was in 1983 well eventually that project kind of got got pushed to the side or, or reworked and stuff and what came out of that then was this new version that progressed along and thanks to his success with the adventures of Pee-wee Herman it was Tim Burton who ended up being the one who was handed the reins for this project. One thing that can't really be glossed. Actually, it was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big was. Adventure, yeah. yeah. One thing that can't be glossed over here is where you had the pull between camp and seriousness. And you got to give a lot of that credit in an undirect way to Richard Donner, who had nothing to do with Batman. But it was his involvement with Superman that had a lot of say into the way that Batman got done. Going into the first Superman movie, the Silkins, they were a Swedish father and son producing team, and they had the rights to do Superman, but they were going to kind of take a page from the 60s version of Batman. It was going to be campy. It was going to be what the sequels turned out to be. But Donner got in there and said, "This you have to treat this serious. You have to treat this as if Superman really is what he is, an American treasure. Superman and Batman are not cut from the same cloth, but they're almost flip sides of the same coin. There's dark and there's light. And Superman, you have to make him truly the ultimate Boy Scout. And that's what they did. You had to treat it with reverence and seriousness. And where Mankiewicz came in, he had been a co-writer on some of the Bond movies, which were kind of campy back in the 70s with Roger Moore. But he needed seriousness. And Mankiewicz got involved with that. Donner ushered in, you have to take this seriously, kind of a mantra with Superman. Now, Batman is a very different thing than Superman. You, as we're learning here, you can't do Batman and Superman the same way. And I think that's 
kind of the problem that we ran into with uh, Man of Steel. You kind of ran into a darker version of Superman, and you can't. Superman has got to be as big, bright, and white as possible. He's a little more like the dingy, evil Superman from Superman 3 that shows up for a while. That's not what Superman is unless it's, you know, Bizarro Superman or something. You have to do it right, and Batman needed to be dark, and it needed to not necessarily be quirky, but then along comes you get a guy like Tim Burton who's got this quirky sensibility about him who got in charge of doing the property. He felt a little constricted, but he got to really pull out the stops and do a very Burton-esque version with the second one, but it was the first one that really went, I think, with a, with a degree of seriousness that it needed, that the producers, they had a property, they had the rights to make money, but not the story, and not they had nothing creative. They just had this, we just want to make a movie, we don't care if it's horrible as long as people will pay to see it, and that's the problem. You needed a visionary to actually come on board and make it happen. Superman had Donner, and to start anyway, Batman wound up with Tim Burton. Yeah, and Tim Burton was not a comic book guy. You can no. read about the the history of the creation of Batman in that 1989 version, and Tim Burton was not a comic book guy in terms of uh, like inspiration and things, with two notable exceptions that came there in the late 1980s and fueled his vision and fueled Warner Brothers' vision on what Batman on the big screen could look like. The first was The Dark Knight Returns a four-comic miniseries that came along in 1986 and brought that that bit of a serious tone with a return of a retired Bruce Wayne in that story. The other was in 1988, Batman the Killing Joke, with that graphic novel and the the very serious tone of that story. Tim this Bur- was not just a comic book for kids. This was almost adult fare. It was. And Tim Burton was very impressed with both of those stories and it fueled and inspired him in in the creation of the Batman that you see in 1989 with with that movie treatment and the way that 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 story was created and fueled but not just the story the world within that story as well and so the idea then was let's go back to the Batman that Bob Kane created let's go back to a more serious tone that comes with this. Let's go back to this this detective who is in a very dark place in a dark world and and yet brings light and hope to it as well. And so that's what they did with that on-screen version. Michael Keaton was a questionable choice as Batman. He was known for comedies at that time. Mr. Mom is Batman? Yeah, and I mean, fans. I mean, think they, back. They had fifty thousand letters oh, yeah. that came into Warner Brothers, Dave. Just something slightly more current when they signed Daniel Craig to be James Bond in about what two thousand. Another great example. Yeah, people were not happy. James Bond can't be blonde. Who cares? Who cares? He turned out to be quite possibly the best of all Bonds. Michael Keaton gets signed, and people are really wringing their hands. I can't believe though. So it's still you can find this trailer on YouTube. It is very hastily put together. But Warner Brothers put together a teaser trailer that came out Christmas time of 1988, about six months before the movie came out, just kind of showing what was going on. There's no music really. I mean, you could tell they just assembled it in somebody's garage quickly and got it out just for the sole purpose, not drumming up hype in the movie, but to settle fears. Everyone knew Jack Nicholson was going to do great as the Joker, but Keaton as Batman, come on. But there were plenty of scenes with him in the dark, not just as Bruce Wayne, but as a brooding, I'm Batman. 
as, as Batman himself. And it eased a lot of fears, and people got so hyped over this. People went to buy tickets. For the first time you'd ever heard of this, people went and bought tickets to whatever movie to go see the teaser trailer for Batman and then walked out. Didn't care to see the movie, just <laughs> wanted to see the teaser trailer. And it was simply, it's on YouTube, go look it up. Yeah. Uh, very quickly put together, not the slickest of teaser trailers you'll ever see, but it was just to ease the fears, and it worked. It worked, yeah. By the time... This is something that you won't understand because you weren't born yet, really. But in the summer of 89, it was the summer of Batman. It was everywhere. You couldn't open your car door without hitting somebody wearing the bat shield or something. It was nauseating almost to a point. It was sick. And as soon as it was over, then those same bat shields showed up at Christmas time on video stores to buy the VHS copy. It was everywhere. And I mean everywhere. You'd never seen hype like this for a movie. Maybe not since, uh, the only time ever since then was probably episode one for Star Wars. It's the only other time it got like that. Uh, and I haven't seen it like that since, ever, for anything. But this was crazy. It was hype. Like, you couldn't believe then people went and saw this real dark version. People brought their kids because it's a comic book movie, and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it set a record for reaching $100 million. At the time, set a record um, with, with how quickly it got there. I mean, the hype, the excitement that people had for seeing this movie just was was unstoppable. And, yeah, with, with Nicholson and his casting as the Joker, yeah, big things were expected. Big things were also required. To be able to accomplish that. I mean, he needed his own filming schedule. He wanted to have time off to go watch Lakers games. <laughs> like, literally, they built that in so he could go and watch Lakers games. Well, on um, TV, because the, they filmed this in England. They did, yes. He, he also took a cut on his salary because he asked for a share of the revenue. That came from the movie and as well. Made a fortune. On he it. sure did. He also asked for top billing. Like that's why when you see the poster for Batman, it's Nicholson Keaton. I mean, I I still look at that and I I'm still baffled by it's, that. Of Batman himself is second billing. Same thing with Superman. Christopher Reeve was third billing because nobody knew who he was. But Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman, right. they were above the title, and neither one of them plays Superman. Right. So, so it's not like it's unprecedented. You get it. But the movie worked. It, yeah. And the other component was having the music of Prince in there as well. Having him performing Bat Dance, having the other music that he provided in there as well. Prince being the, the name that he was there in the 1980s. Like, perfect. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was it was a perfect, perfect storm of many different things coming together with this movie. And people loved it. And, and again, it captured... It captured the aura of Batman. It captured the the, the mythology, the mythology, the darkness of uh, of it. You have a very gothic Gotham City that you get depicted in there, which Tim Burton doubled down on then in Batman Returns, which came three years later. And Batman was extremely su- successful, smashing success. And then they just built on it then with what followed in Batman Returns, and they were off and running. He was given a little more free reign to do what he wanted to do. So Batman Returns in 92 is much more uh, Burton-esque, if you want to call it that. Um, Danny Elfman is back, and of course they've had a pretty good collaboration together. Visually stunning. Uh, You could see a little bit of Beetlejuice worked in there. Christopher Walken has his first association with Tim Burton. 
Uh, but you bring in Danny uh, Danny DeVito as the Penguin and a very interesting um, take on the Penguin like you'd never seen before. And Catwoman with Michelle Pfeiffer is iconic uh, just in the look and in the demeanor and in just the feminism around it. Um, and that also had a lot of hype. But uh, the return of The Dark Knight, Michael Keaton is back. It did great box office-wise. It's a great Burton film. But for me, it's a lot of, like I said, it's a lot of frosting and not so much cake. It's just a lot of weird peculiarities that don't really bring the weight. I, I don't know how to really describe it, but it seems like there's a lot there and it's not all coming together. You know? Regardless, however, it was still very successful. Oh, and, very successful. Yeah, and many, many really appreciated it. Many really liked it. Yeah, it's got it's got that, again, a little bit of a different tone and a different pacing from the first one, but still, still ended up working very well, still ended up being very successful. So Batman on the big screen was suddenly not only well-established, but was a box office, just a box office pool in massive ways. And you got to give, just take a quick second here for a shout out, the the Keaton version of Batman lives on. They've got this multiverse thing that's popping up in a lot of different properties, but also with the Flash. And we're going to see Michael Keaton back as Batman here pretty quick. And Keaton himself has established kind of a comeback in his career. He's been up for Oscars. I'll bet you before he passes away, he'll win one the way he's going. Uh, he's been in a couple of Best Picture movies, and uh, so great career for Michael Keaton, even beyond Batman, where people like George Clooney, which we'll get to, say that almost killed his career. Yeah. It depends on what a lot of people do, and Keaton kind of, he's never really wanted to be front and center. He just wanted to have a good career and do good work, and clearly that's kind of coming around here in the last decade or so, um, from Spotlight into Birdman, where he kind of revisits Batman in a way, and now he literally is going back as Bruce Wayne. So, quick little shout-out to where we are in the present tense. Yeah, because Michael Keaton brought this almost quiet torment to yeah. the way that he that he played the character and the way that he brought it about. And and there were little mannerism things that he did that I, I think a lot of people really appreciated about what he brought to the character, how he depicted the character, and not just with Batman, but with Bruce Wayne as well and with the things that he needed to navigate as well that get shown there on screen because... Batman, the 1989 Batman, is not really an origin story, and yet you get the origin in there, but it but it comes progressively throughout the movie. You don't get it at the very beginning. It gets worked in, and it gets worked in in the midst of, of Batman's work, and you can tell it's somewhat early on in... Probably a year or so in. He's a legend, but no one really knows. He's been out there for a couple can, of years. Yeah, because at the very beginning, he's like, there's no I, want, I want you to go tell your friends about me. Yeah, there's, there's no bat. He's been around... But not around for very long. So, and then comes that iconic line, "I'm Batman." I'm as he Batman. as he pulls it, as he pulls in the bad guy and, and lets him know. And so, you get this establishment that came with those first two movies. Then things changed hands going into the kind 1995 of. Batman Forever, which was directed by Joel Schumacher. But Tim Burton was still involved, and it was going to be another Burton movie. And you can Google to get all the fine details, but long story short, Burton wanted to do things the studio didn't want to do, um, and he decided, okay, I don't want to direct it. So we need to bring in somebody else. They still had Michael Keaton attached to be his Batman, but when Tim Burton more or less stepped away, at least from the director's chair. He did stay on as a producer, but by all accounts, he was a very hands-off producer. He had done his two Batman movies, and he was kind of done, but kind of more in a token method, stayed apart. 
Uh, Michael Keaton didn't want to do it if Burton wasn't going to direct it, so they needed to recast the role. And this is where Joel Schumacher stepped in as a director who, at this point, I think the biggest movie he had done was The Lost Boys, a great 80s vampire movie that had just been a few years before. So he steps in. They got to bring in a new Batman. Val Kilmer comes in. They also decide now is the time to bring in Robin, who was originally going to be a part of the, the 89 version. They decided not to. He was going to be a part of the Batman Returns. They decided not to. There was a lot of changes here. Damon Wayans was originally cast as Robin. They didn't use him. They paid him to show up and not play the role. Tommy Lee, or Tommy Lee Jones is hired, of course, as Two-Face, but they had brought in Billy D. Williams, who had best been known as Lando. Yes, to be t- originally. To, in the original. Because the re- he played... He Harvey played Dent. Harvey Dent in Batman. Knowing that probably down the line he would get to play Two-Face, and he was still under contract to do that. They basically took two guys to do Robin and Harvey Dent that were pretty much already under contract to thank you for your time, we'll pay you, but you're not going to do it. He was really disappointed, though, yeah. I read, that he didn't get the chance to reprise that character yeah. and, and get into it. So they had to recast a lot of those roles. So in comes Val Kilmer as Batman. Originally, they had Renee Russo as the female interest, but when Keaton dropped out with a younger Val Kilmer, they needed a younger gal to be Chase. So now they literally bring in Chase Meridian, Nicole Kidman. They bring in Jim Carrey, who was just a rising rocket at this point. He'd only done The Mask and Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. I think this was his fourth big major Here's Jim Carrey movie. Uh, you bring in uh, Tommy Lee Jones to do Two-Face. By all accounts, Jim Carrey and uh, Tommy Lee Jones did not get along on set. <laughs> they okay. pretty much were trying to one-up one another, and it was a very contentious relationship. Um, but then they bring in uh, Chris O'Donnell as uh, as Robin, who I think did a pretty good job. But you've also got the carryovers. Michael Goh continues as Batman through this whole thing. But Batman, the whole look of the movie went from this dark, brooding, gothic, Tim Burton-esque to very bright, neon comic book. They really tried to make every frame of the movie look like a colorful comic book work of art. Visually, a very different take. It was a lot more fun and playful and much more comic book and much more let's make some toys. It'll fit well into a Happy Meal kind of an idea. In my opinion, it was a fun movie. It was a good movie. It worked. It did not take itself seriously. Um, even the whole, holy rusted metal, Batman. What do you mean? Well, it's holes in the metal. It's really rusted. Oh, you know, it was clearly aware of the joke and in on the joke. It just took the joke too far when they did the next one after that with Batman and Rob. I liked Batman forever. It's a comic book movie that takes itself not seriously and takes uh, akin to more of the bat of the Superman sequels that were a little more campy, but intentionally so. Yeah, the problem was it it worked enough. It I it didn't ex- it didn't work exceptionally well, but it worked enough. well enough to where it gave the idea that Let's double down on some of these oh, things boy. going into Batman and Robin in 1997, which came along a mere two years after Batman Forever. And by this point, they, they were changing Batman again. In came George Clooney into that role, and they just overstuffed it with not only characters, but also story and just silliness even throwing you know Uma Thurman who's coming off of Pulp Fiction let's throw in the biggest action star of all time Arnold Schwarzenegger it it was let's throw in another rising young star of the time in Alicia Silverstone who just done Clueless the whole thing was clearly put together by studio committee you know here's let's make some money let's get some more toys out there wow 
it's it's a toy commercial is what it is. It is I mean it's not that you can't watch it, but I mean you better be prepared for what you're going to watch because it's not there's not like there's no nothing redeeming about it, but you have to look hard. It's 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 an example of how not to do this. It's an example of every screenwriter should watch this movie as an example of what not to write. Horrible dialogue. Just about everything that comes out of Schwarzenegger's mouth is a horrible pun. Uh, it's just a bad movie, and probably the less we say about it, the better. But this almost killed Batman as a franchise. It really did. There was talk about doing another Batman after this, but the I mean, people went to see the movie, but not really. Everyone knew what they were going to see. I, in my opinion, and in the opinions of others, the one thing that saved Batman at this point was what was going on on the small screen, and to a limited extent on the big screen. There was an animated version, which I've seen a few episodes of, so I really can't comment closely, but this is where Mark Hamill comes into things. Hoove has seen a lot of the animated Batman series, and Mask of the Phantasm is related to that. This was really good Batman, funny enough, happening at the same time that the horrible big screen Batman and Robin was going on. Talk about highs and lows simultaneously. That's right. Because at the same time that Batman had been relaunched with Tim Burton's version of it in 1989. It didn't just spawn into big screen versions of Batman. It also spawned the DC animated universe that came with this as well. Which is universally thumbs up approved, pretty much. Yes. You kind of wish it really came back to that nowadays. Yes, it has been extremely successful. Batman the Animated Series took off then into the 90s and was an enormous hit. I mean you could you could find you could find it just by watching you know on cable or on it's out what, there. What what was the CW before it was the CW? Was, was that the, the, WB network? It either became the WB I think is what it was before, yeah. Yeah, so you find Batman on there and animate the animated telling of Batman's story became an enormous success. And like you said, just seemed to always hit the right notes where you're suddenly taking a comic book character and putting him into a cartoon landscape, and one that suddenly had a very similar kind of tone and feel to what the the comic book was looking like, and then and then you factor in somebody like Mark Hamill being able to play a role like the Joker, and they they Great just voice they they hit right note after right note after right note, and then it got to the point where they were even able to make some feature length kind of stories and tellings of it. And there was maybe none more popular, none more successful, at least in the 90s, than Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which was this tremendous story that was put together. I watched it, I remember, as a kid, I I watched it, and I was mesmerized by it when I watched it as a kid. I remember we rented it one time and watched it since it was Batman. And I it was, think you can find it on HBO Max. I might be wrong about that, but I, I think it's there. I just watched. I just rented and watched it on YouTube TV recently, you too. You do that, too. It's out or, there. And not YouTube TV, uh, just YouTube in general. It's out there. I've not seen it as much as Hoove, but what I've seen and what, what you've heard universally, it's a very good show. If you're a Batman fan and you just need more Batman content, Go check out Batman animated series and its various spinoffs. It's all very, very good. Well, yeah, I, I only mostly watched like the movie versions. I, I forget if I watched Sub Zero, which had Mister Freeze in it, but I watched Mask of the Phantasm when I was a kid, and it's it's so good. There are there are many Batman fans who would put it up against any any big screen adaptation of Batman. And Mask of the Phantasm was released in theaters, yep. like it, and it did very well. 
in theaters too. And that's like 1993, I think, that that came out. So a year after you've got Batman, Batman Returns on the screen, you've got suddenly the cartoon version of Batman on there too. So despite what eventually ended up becoming waning popularity on and just waning appreciation thanks to the Schumacher films uh, of Batman live action on the big screen, Batman continued to be a successful property thanks to the animated version. And after Warner Brothers scratched future plans for Batman live action on, on film after Batman and Robin, they took a few years off, they retooled, they waited, and then they got the right guy for a reboot of it in 2005. Christopher Nolan came in and to some and to some reasons thanks to the success of the animated series in the 90s, uh the resurgence of not so much the comic books but graphic novels, most notably really influencing into uh the Batman Begins movie, Batman Year 1. And, uh, oh, what was the one with uh, Jonathan Crane in it? Uh, the Endless Halloween. Oh, I'm having a metal The Long break. Halloween. Long Halloween. There you go. They both kind of, you could see those, threads. Yeah, those two stories were the big driving influences. Yeah. But not only that, Nolan was also inspired by Richard Donner's Superman. Because exactly. Because he, in reading about this, he felt that the previous iterations of Batman were too focused on style and not enough on drama. Not, not enough, enough cake, too much frosting. Yeah, not enough character development that had gone on. So he wanted to get back to that at the core. He wanted to take the same approach that Donner did with Superman and treat it with reverence and respect for what it was and take it seriously. And like I would mentioned earlier, I think Batman Begins, if there was a real Bruce Wayne in this world, if it was a better in-shape version of, uh, of uh, Bill Gates, who had unlimited resources and had the drive to want to do this, could it be done? And if it could, how would it be done? This is as realistic as I think Batman can get. And uh, if you have military-grade hardware as part of your company that you own that now you're going to kind of stake off the books, then this is how you would do it. So it was a comic book movie done not for all the style, although it definitely had some style to it, but it was great substance. And it was a true origin story as well yes. with Batman Begins. I mean, the other driving influence and inspiration was a short story called The Man Who Falls, which was about the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. And then he, he travels the world, training, learning, preparing. And then back he comes to become Batman. And you, you don't see Batman himself until like halfway through the movie, 45 minutes into the movie. It's all Bruce's adventure. Batman doesn't show up till like the shark in Jaws. You don't see it till almost midway right. through the movie. And it kind of jars you when you watch it because you're like, I came here for Batman. Well, you literally get Batman in development. You get the League of Shadows. You get Ra's al Ghul. You get him learning to channel his anger and his desire to his desire to make things right in the world, but it also sets the stage for the themes that come out throughout that movie, especially with how Raz and how Batman see dealing with the problems of the world. And an amazing cast brought in. You've got great, great veterans like Liam Neeson and Michael Caine and even Morgan Freeman, but you also have upcoming stars. Christian Bale had a pretty good work repertoire, but he wasn't what you'd call a known actor, really. He was kind of on the outside looking in. At that point, probably the biggest movie he had done, one, two of them, one as a kid with Spielberg, Empire of the Sun, but he was just a kid. 
uh, American Psycho a few years before that, but he's not like one of those well-known actors until Batman. Katie Holmes on her way up. Um, uh, Cillian uh, Murphy is also fantastic, uh, who is just starting to get known. It's a great assemblage of veteran and Rutger Hauer's in there. Yes. Uh, a veteran talent and upcoming talent coming together with a really good visionary director who's got great style and amazing substance. He Christopher Nolan marries all of that so well. And then when you can, when you can put together Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard doing the music. I mean, Batman the music of the Batman movies with Burton and Schumacher had been terrific. Like they had found a great theme that they had been able to run with. Their great themes mm-hmm. have permeated through the Batman story pretty much all throughout. I mean, yeah, maybe it's not great, but you, you You've got the Batman. No, 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 no. The sixties were you, you what they were. You think of that one, yeah. But then, but then, when the eighties and nineties came around, they found their own theme. They found this this tone different. that worked really well. That was different. different. That was that had the serious element to it. I I, I got I beg to differ. The first part, one of the rare times that we disagree on some stuff. You actually had two different guys for that run. You had Danny Elfman for the first two with Tim Burton. And then he did not return along with about a lot of other people. But then you got a guy named Elliot Goldenthal who did uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which was a very different thing. It was not really all that memorable. Of the two... The Elfman one was what I was yes, talking about as far as what yes. was memorable. Yeah, I will agree with that one. That was dark and brooding and went with everything. And Goldenthal did a great job. It just meant it just went with everything else that was there, which was kind of frosting no cake. It's a nice metaphor to keep yeah. coming back to. It's not memorable. It was, you know... It was almost like sliding scales. Dun, 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 dun. That's not really all that memorable. And now you start getting into something else. And while I'm, you know, I do love Zimmer and I do love James Newton Howard and I do love the score for this movie. It's almost memorable for the drum beat more than anything else. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, anybody could come up with that, but it worked so well. But then you'd get the the brass coming, and it just worked. But it wouldn't, you know, it's it's memorable, but in a way that's different from others that you would say is classically memorable. But then again, would I have done anything different? Probably under the circumstances, no. It worked for what it was, but is it memorable? Uh, 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 not really, I guess. My car makes the same noise when I run over something on the highway. Oh, geez, I got to pull over. I got to fly. You know, it's it's, but it worked. It absolutely worked, but I don't think it was all that great either. I'm sorry. It gets pretty memorable, though, with the next movie that came along. I, I mean, I think of that music, and the music really caught the tone of that movie extremely well and was a big part of why that movie yeah. worked so well, too. But Batman Begins was a really good start. It, it was great. But then at the very end of the movie, um, in the ruins of Wayne Manor, you get, you get Bruce Wayne being handed this card by Alfred, and it's a Joker card. And so you go, oh, so he's not been around here in this movie, but it looks like he'll be coming back. Because keep in mind, the Joker, at least in live action, in a live action sense, had been on ice since Jack Nicholson's 1989 portrayal. But then then came Heath Ledger, who was a really questionable casting. And a lot of people were like, seriously, Heath Ledger? I don't remember that. No, that... That was, it was questionable. People were like, how is he going to play 
this role specifically. Um, and then then came the production of the film, and that but then came the big moment before the release of the film, and that was the passing of Heath Ledger, which was a a such a sad moment across the movie world. And but at the same time, it also drew a lot of attention to the Dark Knight. And beyond just that the Dark Knight was coming and that this was going to be the return of the Joker on the big screen, it then it got attention because of the passing of Heath Ledger as well. So all of And the- what turned out to be an Oscar winning performance, the first of two wins that people would win for playing the role of the Joker. Right. So all of this set the set the stage for the movie. The the tragic element of that did as well. And what it led into was just a a movie phenomenon, which changed so much. We did our own episode yeah. on the Dark Knight about it, and we won't we won't rehash too much of that. But it was a touchstone moment in many ways. It was the superhero movie suddenly getting a new kind of recognition. They changed the way that they take Best Picture nominations in large part because of The Dark Knight. Now they have up to 10 that they will allow in a given year because the uproar over The Dark Knight not being nominated for Best Picture was so pronounced. and Simply because it's a comic book movie. And so justified, too. It should have been nominated for Best Picture. It It was a sensational hit, and many consider it the greatest superhero movie of all time. The serious tones, the themes, the themes yeah. were so prominent within it as well that that came through it. Ledger's performance as the Joker, just a a titanic performance that that he gave there. Like you said, winning Best Supporting Actor for his performance in there, and the first Oscar win for the Joker of another that was to come then in the future. But it it was it was a monumental moment in many ways i think in a lot of ways people look at comic book movies and you could tell from the producers let's have a fun with it let's make it a comic book movie a comic book movie rather than something serious to be revered again you go back to donner's comments you got to treat it with a serious reverence and nolan is doing that and more so than ever before or since with the dark knight and uh, that was huge he treated it very seriously it's a comic book movie that it'd be if you could really do this for real again, bad guys included. What would happen? You got this. It was treated as serious drama. It holds up to this day and probably will for the remainder of my lifetime. It is a spectacular feat of movie making. And it also brought back some of the detective elements yes. of Batman too. You see a lot of that. It it is a crime and detective story in a lot at of, its heart. Yeah, at its heart, and especially the first half of that movie, the first act of that movie, you get a lot of that in there until things descend into madness, and then it changes up. I. One of my favorite parts about that movie is the the very shaky relationship between Jim Gordon, Harvey Dent, and Batman. This triumvirate that are drawn together and they are in a very shaky alliance with each other that you can see is on somewhat tenuous ground early in the movie. For various reasons. I mean, they they all have to kind of trust each other over different things. But you can tell things are shaky. You can tell that things are set up to not go well. And you can tell that Harvey Dent is on the edge of perhaps descending into something else. And then he does. Yeah. 
and and it's a just great a sensational movie. Oh, it's it's top to bottom, front to back. It is so layered. It is uh, just to go back to the cake metaphor. It's cake plus the dinner and the salad and some fine beverages to go with it. It is such a layered everything. The performances, the writing. It is a perfect marriage of style and substance. So it was a couple of years then, a, a few extra years. I shouldn't just say a couple. It was more than two. It was a few extra years, like 2012, four years later, when The Dark Knight Rises came along then. And but was Nolan released. also would do a Batman movie and then another non-Batman movie. Yes. And then he'd go back to Batman. Then, and, of course, I think it was in between them that Memento, or not Memento, uh, ins- ah, not Insomnia, that too. but uh, 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 Memento ah. was what kind of put him on the map before Batman Begins, and then it was... <sighs> And then came Insomnia. But What's between, the DiCaprio one with the dreams? Between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight was when The Prestige came out. And then between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises was when Inception, Inception. came out. Inception, thank yeah. you. I, that's, I was having a brain fart and could not. I know that movie. I could see the poster. Love that movie. Yep. But in between each of those Batman movies, he did his own project. And to watch Inception, that was involved. That took time. And it was his own masterpiece. Yes. And so he follows a masterpiece with another masterpiece. All hail Nolan. Then he gets back to Batman. Everyone wants to see the end of it, so the Dark Knight Rises comes in. We see Tom Hardy come into the mix. We see uh, uh, Selena Kyle come in with... uh, As Anne Hathaway 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 playing that role. Yep. This was going to be a nice conclusion, but can we conclude two great movies leading up to it? Can it come to a conclusion that will satisfy everybody? I don't know if that's really possible, but... I think they tied it off as well as could be expected, but in unexpected ways. And we did, I'm pretty sure we mentioned spoilers are forthcoming. But you see something, spoiler coming, this is your chance. Yes. You basically see what, depending on how you interpret it, the death of Bruce Wayne and Batman may be. You know, does he bring this bomb out over the ocean and detonate it to save everybody by sacrificing himself? Is Alfred just wishing he sees Bruce later in a cafe out in Europe somewhere, or does he really see him? That's up to you to interpret, you know, but kind of like the, the last James Bond movie, no, they can't have that end light. Wait, really? Really? Depends on your interpretation for this time. Bond, not so much. It's pretty much straight up, but this one is up to you. But Batman... He got away safely, Dave. Sure. He was fine. But Batman is one of those things where everyone's going to take a spin on it, and then somebody else will take another spin on it, like we're seeing right now with Matt Reeves and his version of Batman, which does not need to carry over any kind of theme or plot or anything for anything previous. They're all kind of reboot and redoes. I liked that they that they decided and that Nolan decided to tie the story off, to have yeah. a beginning and an ending. And to bring it full circle, they brought back elements from Batman Begins in terms of story. They brought back elements from The Dark Knight, although out of respect for Ledger and his performance of the Joker... The Joker is not directly referenced in any way in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, Very passively. Yeah. And he was going to be more of in the fo- jail, like a Hannibal Lecter type, originally according to what the original kind of storyline outline was. But with his departure, they no, let's just drop all elements of that. Yeah, more of the focus was on Harvey Dent's character and the actions and choices that were made there and the fallout of those and how that feeds into the story. The thing about Bat- the Dark Knight Rises is it took it took Batman and made it into a a big canvas movie in in a big way. Like they made it into an epic in a lot of ways. And some people really really like that. Some people didn't like that quite as much. Plus you have the gravitas of the Dark Knight and Heath Ledger as the Joker hanging over expectation for the Dark Knight Rises. I know it certainly did for me and I expected the Dark Knight Rises to be the greatest movie ever made. 
it's not that, but it's a very, very good movie and yes. a very worthy way of tying off the story. So, And it makes an iconic character like Batman human. He's an older, more broken down version of Bruce Wayne. Batman is not in this top physical condition that you see right. him get beaten. You By know, a physical imposing force. Oh, huge. You know, it's about pain. You know, can Batman can Batman win? You always know he's going to, but I, this time, I don't know. I just watched him get his butt kicked. Yeah. I, this might be it for him. If he goes in, this is going to be a fatal encounter. Plus, Bane's voice was was a big topic going yeah. into the movie because they, they did a special treatment before another movie where they played the opening scene, basically, the the plane heist. They did a treatment in, in select theaters with the opening scene and Bane's voice is different in that treatment than what the final product was in harder the movie. Harder to understand. Yeah, it was harder to understand, but it was a little more serious sounding as well. Like once they changed the voice up based on the feedback, it ended up becoming a little bit different and in some people's eyes a little bit more comical that came with it then as far as like that the higher tone of his voice and and like that. I would have wanted to see how the darker, deeper version would have turned out, and maybe someday we'll get a special edition movie that that will that will have a little bit more of Possibly. that, and maybe we'll see. But, but anyway, resounding success, all three of those movies. So they then, stand on their own for all time. So then came the the wonder wonderment of what's next, so what's going up. to come next. Before we go down that path, you have to pay a little homage to what helped to bring that about. And you got to go switch gears from DC to Marvel. At this point, shortly around the time that Dark Knight Rises come out, you start getting this beginning of this Marvel Cinematic Universe where you start getting the guys like Iron Man and and Thor and all these other great guys from the Marvel properties that 2012, are 2012, what a year. Then the the Avengers. Avengers had come out that year, and yep. then you also have The Dark Knight Rises, two enormous tentpoles of superhero movies. So you've got all these different properties now, very similar to when Star Wars first came out. Every, every theater, every uh, studio, everyone that owns property – looking for what they can do to capitalize and duplicate the success. So now DC, well, we've got more than just Batman. We have Superman, and of course, by this point, they'd had the the Man of Steel coming up. Uh, Christopher Nolan had a hand in that uh, to try to get involved with that. And they're trying to build a DC version of what Marvel is trying to do now with their cinematic universe. Well, we, we've got all the, the biggest, best guys. We've got... All of this, let's make the the Marvel version, but for DC, let's bring in the Justice League. Let's do individual movies, and then we'll have them come together. We'll do the same formula that they're doing in Marvel. But Marvel had much better hands at the wheel. They had a much better vision, while I think DC, in a lot of ways, was looking at money. Let's make this, because look at the money they're making, rather than look at the great work they're doing. I think the worst of the MCU movies is still pretty darn good. You know, but you can't say that about DC. Some of those are just. So now we got to get a whole new star. We got to bring in somebody else. They bring in Bat, 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 Bat Fleck. Ben <laughs> you Af automatically went. To I the almost nickname. went to say Bat Fleck, but that, that's that's the nickname. Ben Affleck comes in, kind of a love hate relationship with the public. He's got some really good work and in, in personal life, and then not some great work in personal life. But he's starting on a career comeback at this point. Argo, great movie. So he comes in. You assemble a great all-star cast around him. Jeremy Irons comes in as the new Alfred, who I think does great. 
But it's almost like what Universal was trying to do at this point, doing the same thing with the monster movies. They wanted to make a dark universe. And it did not start well with Tom Cruise's version of The Mummy. You kind of see where we're going here. Look what we can build versus what kind of bricks are you going to build it with? You know, doesn't matter. Look at the final structure. Yeah, but if it's a house of cards, it's not going to stand very well. And DC has learned this. Universal very quickly learned this with their universe of darkness, which quickly got aborted right after the mummy fiasco. There was a whole bunch in development that are now not going to happen. So now DC still to this day are still trying to do some audibles on this play, but a lot of it is kind of, they've had some success. Wonder Woman kind of okay, not so okay. Aquaman so far, okay. Um, Well, Wonder Woman was a huge hit. The first one was. The first movie. The second one, not so much. And that's unfortunate because the first one started so well. But where Batman gets reeled into this one, there's actually direct continuity to the standalone Superman Man of Steel. So now we get to we get to the Justice League part. It and was we start Batman, Batman versus Superman. Super Dawn of Justice, which was a colossal flop. Yeah. I mean, just a, a, a the, disaster. And you could see it on the walls. This was the last that was not a Wonder Woman movie, the last DC movie that I went and saw on my own because I wanted to. All the rest of them, you knew were going to be colossal problems from just, I've, if I had a superhero, if I was a mutant, if I was an X-Man, people can bend metal. My mutant ability, I can tell within a 95 percentile from watching the trailer whether the movie's going to be any good or not. I'm really good at it. And I could tell <laughs> that Batman versus Superman was going to be bad before I even saw it, but I wanted to see Batman versus Superman and I wish I didn't. It was just bad, bad, bad. And it didn't get a whole lot better, particularly for where Batman is concerned. Now, he's got his moments. And I do think that uh, Affleck did a better version that other people were concerned of. Um, but the whole thing overall, it's not just about whether Affleck was good or not. All of it around him was not that good. The reason they're fighting was stupid. The reason they stopped fighting was stupid. Your mom's name is Martha, too? Huh, let's be buddies. You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) The whole thing, Jesse Eisenberg, I think, is a great actor, but he was horrible as Lex Luger. Lex Lex Luger's a wrestler. Lex Luthor, the bad guy. That movie was like bringing your great car into a bad mechanic and watching him screw it up. That's what DC became from there on out. Yeah, and the disappointing thing about Batman's character was he suddenly became a bit player in the larger Justice League story. I mean, it started with that movie, and it started with what you get in that movie from him. But then you also get that in Justice League itself, where in both versions of Justice League, same movie, different different. See the longer one. It. It's really long, but it's better. But yeah. even then, it's not that great. Right. Even even still, you get you get Batman as a bit player within the Justice League. You have him doing certain things but also kind of standing around and watching these these super the these super generated people flying around him doing all these different things who have their own superpowers and stuff and yeah you get the justice league on screen you finally get a chance to see them on the big screen as well but it's not the filet mignon it needs to be no it's, and it's microwaved mac and cheese and perhaps in some ways doesn't doesn't give batman the kind of treatment that he deserves i mean he he does more than just be be a cheerleader watching all of them he's got a role that he plays in there too with the justice league so all of that like that that's it's no wonder then that dc was looking on a way to be able to to do a new version of batman the character because that took 
that kind of took a dive in terms of Batman and him being on on the big screen. Like those two film treatments of him, again, outside of Ben Affleck and his performance, the way that those movies were released, they've at least dropped Batman, the consciousness of Batman on the big screen and our appreciation of it enough from the Nolan movies that I think it set the stage for a need and a want to get him into his own movie again where he is the focus again, which has set the stage for Matt Reeves, the Batman. One other thing I'll say is when you had Marvel deciding let's bust out these, you could call them second-run characters with the exception of Spider-Man. Most of these characters, a lot of people never heard of Iron Man before the MCU got going and Robert Downey Jr. did his take. But one of the best things that Marvel did They had all of this in the hands of a very capable guy who wasn't the writer, but he knew how to find the people, the talent to be in it. He assembled a great team around him. Kevin Feige was an example of how to do this. DC got Zack Snyder, who's got amazing visual talents, but when it comes to anything beyond that, not so much. Just not so much. They're not horrible, horrible movies, but there's just nothing beyond the glitz and the glamour. Once you peel off the shiny wrapping paper, it's just an empty cardboard box. It's, it's like eating a, a meal of air. You know, It's filling for maybe a moment until you take just a half a second to examine what you just consumed, and it's just nothing. It's the style versus story element. Lack again. of story element. Yeah. I mean, it's just scotch taped together. It's not there. It just does not hold up at all. You look at, say, what Christopher Nolan had done with Batman, that is not even not talking about shepherding it through, caretaking. He really took care of what happened. He had a great team around him. He was very involved, very hands-on. Not only did he, you know, co-write with his brother and with his wife, and I mean they've got an amazing team. I haven't seen one movie of his that's been bad. Every single thing is good because they care. And they're really shepherding it through. I'm anxious to see what he does with Oppenheimer. That'll be a good movie. Yeah. Let's hope. I'm sure it will be because he hasn't dropped the ball yet. But Zack Snyder, you don't have a track record of that. And even at that point, his movies did okay at the box office, but they're looking at dollar signs and they're not looking at, yeah, people went to see it and they weren't loving it. 300 is an okay movie, but it's very stylistic. It's not based on history on any level. It's supposed to be, but isn't. It's substance, no style. I think I said that backwards. All style, no substance. There you go. Yep. That's not what you put these American icons into the hands of. You just need to find somebody better. And uh, Batman deserves better. Superman deserves better. The Justice League and Wonder Woman, they all deserve better. But they didn't get that. So now, since Batman is less of a hot property, they're not trying to strike now while the iron is hot kind of thing. Now is a perfect opportunity. And it started out with Ben Affleck staying on board And we'll talk a little bit about the Batman before we really get into part two where we talk about the Batman. Affleck was going to be in this movie. Uh, He teamed up with the filmmakers to come up with a basic storyline before Affleck decided to walk away. They ended up recasting the role. And it, how much of what was originally written down and how much wound up in the finished product, I don't really know. Um, But it started to become one thing before it became something else. You had the people that were involved in all the Justice League, call it the DC era of uh, MCU kind of version of the DC, kind of stepped away and Matt Reeves got to step in and do his own version of what he wanted to do, kind of like what Tim Burton got to start to do and certainly what Nolan got a chance to do. And by all accounts, 
did very, very well. And I'll have more to say on how well they did next time we talk because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting your reactions, Dave, which will be the, the focal point of our next episode here regarding talking about the Batman itself, the new movie. But Batman the character has has worked so extremely well for the most part on the big screen over the course of the last three decades. It's just been a mainstay on the big screen. And it, I think it, in, a, in large part it is because of Batman the character. Batman the role, Batman the way it was created by Bob Kane originally, he was created in terms of that comic book character where it is uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne himself is is a normal person in terms of abilities and strengths. What's not normal, of course, is the money. What's not normal is that. And yet, there is there is something that fuels him. His story is a compelling one. The like I said at the beginning, the villains are very compelling. The the way that he the treatment of how he combats evil and crime is in its own way very compelling too. There's there is a bit of a gritty realism to it. There's there's the possibility for getting very dark with it. There's the possibility for being a little bit lighter with it as well, but but there's not it doesn't feel like there's this this kitty funny kind of version to it that maybe you get with with some some other superheroes who are out there. This is a this is a serious character in a serious world and so it it breeds serious stories and yet there is that element that Batman represents something within all of this. And the symbol that he is, a symbol of many different things is I think maybe one of those other very definable characteristics that makes Batman so appealing. In a way, Batman is an anti-hero. He yes. is, when you look, just in real day life, you look around and you see things the way they shouldn't be. People getting away with bad things, corrupt politicians, and even in some cases, corrupt police. Batman has the same thing, but Batman has the ability and the resources and the will to act and right those wrongs. When you see the old lady mugged and nobody steps in to help, Batman does. When the police are corrupt, Batman comes in and pulls out those corrupt cops and you get the one good cop of the bunch, Commissioner Gordon, becomes a shining beacon between he and Batman to make sure all that is under him is just shiny and bright as a yang to Batman's darkness. He uses criminal tactics in a lot of ways to do good things. He's almost like a Jedi, but not quite a Sith. He's like a dark version of the Jedi. He'd be like if Luke Skywalker had a red lightsaber, so to speak, to give you a visual representation. He does things good but uses uh, elements of the bad against the bad. So it kind of cancels out in a way. He's without anti- killing. Without killing. That's his big rule. That, that it is always followed, but you know that's generally the rule. He is an anti-hero that has become uh, as roguish and as lovable for a lot of different reasons as a lot of other anti-hero types. You know, uh, He is something that a lot of people, in a way, aspire to be. How many times have you seen something horrible? Well, if I was, I would go in it, but you can't. But Batman does. He's sort of the dark fantasy that some people have to make things better around them when maybe the, the way to do that isn't the best way to do it. Well, if only somebody could, and then you have Batman to do it for you. And it keeps leading to compelling stories on the big screen like the ones that we have seen here over the last several decades and the one yeah. that just came along. Stay tuned for that. That is coming up here in the near future that we'll have that episode um, once Dave gets a chance to watch it and we'll be talking about the Batman. Yeah. You know, one really good thing about Batman as a character is 
there are going to be, this is going to be built up, then torn down and rebuilt and torn down. There is no one big thing. We've always said, don't touch classic things and remake them. Batman is a totally different thing. It's not any, there's not any one story, not on page, not on the small screen or the big screen that is going to be the end all be all Batman. Even as much as we love things like the Dark Knight, there will be something down the road that'll come up that'll be a whole other thing. There's not any one. There's numerous versions of great examples of Batman. There's also some numerous examples of bad Batman, but this is not any one thing where there's a definitive thing. You're going to see different versions of Batman. Everyone's going to hail them and love them, and then they will go away. And then the next version is going to come up and people will love them as much or not as much, or it'll be the shining beacon on the hill. And then that'll go away. And the next version will come. You don't have a lot of properties where that happens, but with, with comic book heroes, Superman and Spider-Man and, and you know, Incredible Hulk and so forth, they're going to have their moments. The Avengers are doing great things. They're going to go away. And at some point there'll be a whole new version. We will see Iron Man again. It won't be Tommy. It won't be uh, Robert Downey Jr. It'll be a whole other version because the character is important. Just like Batman, there will be countless versions. And after Matt Reeves and, uh, and he's done with his version of the Batman, we're going to see Robert Pattinson out of the role and another guy and another filmmaker and another crew and another mountain for Batman will be built, hopefully very, very well. And then the next one, this will never end. And that's one of the lasting appeals of Batman. It's up to you as to which you think is the best version, the best mountain that's been built, the best person cast as the role. Batman is going to live forever. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport. A deep dive today on talking about Batman on the big screen. And they're showing Batman at the uh, theater right now. Go see it. That's right. So we will have our definitive review of the Batman coming up in our next episode of the podcast. Spoiler filled, just so you know. Yes, so come, come prepared. Until then, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you around Gotham and at the movies. Same bad time, same bad channel.